Hello! And welcome to the Bad Farmer edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios, and I'm joined as ever this week by Anna Shemansky. Hello. And by Emily Peck hello, hello. of the Huffington Post. And the big news this week, there's been a lot of news in business and finance news this week. The big news this week is that I think, possibly for the first time ever, Emily and Anna are actually on the same page for most <laughs> of this podcast. We are going to be talking about Apple's move into services. We are going to be talking about Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family. We are going to be talking about the Lyft IPO. And somehow, it seems that like the world's great contrarian, Ms. Anna Shemansky, like, even she can't bring herself to defend the Sacklers oh, on this Oh, good God, one. no. <laughs> <laughs> or even to try and work out like why people are buying into this Lyft IPO at $90 a share or whatever it's trading at. So all of that coming up on Slate Money. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. So let's talk about Apple, which has been releasing all manner of amazing things over the past few weeks. They released a new set of AirPods, which charge wirelessly and have longer battery life. They released a new iMac, which is super swanky and fast. And they released a whole suite of new iPads. And they had a huge event in Cupertino in their amazing new Steve Jobs Theater, which announced absolutely none of those because they are no longer a gadgets company. They're services apparently. company. They're now a, they are now... They are shifting to services. Shifting to services. They, to care, services. they care much more about services. Services are a tiny part of their revenue by Apple standards, by any, anyone, any other normal company standards. Their services revenue is enormous, but by Apple standards, their re- services revenue is small. But this is clearly what they care about. And oh boy, do they care about it. They they Who did they bring out? They brought out Steven Spielberg and Oprah, Oprah and... Jennifer Aniston, Reese Witherspoon. Uh, all manner of amazing people and celebrities. And what were these celebrities announcing? Do we have any real clarity on that? It was, from what I saw, a bunch of half-baked stuff. It was Apple TV Plus coming soon with a show starring Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Aniston, which unclear what it kind of is. And... 
There was a video game subscription service, which I don't kind of know how that works. There was this magazine subscription service, which I guess got a lot of attention from my journalist Twitter feed, but is basically just an update of what it kind of already has. So they had this thing called Apple News, and now there's this new thing called Apple News Plus, which it's a um, revamp which of basic, texture, yeah. which is which used to be texture, which used to advertise on Slate Money. Thank you, texture, and you could you can use it to read a whole bunch of things which you couldn't read previously on Apple News because they were behind the paywall. But now if you pay Apple News... $10 a month. You can read them. It's unclear how much uptake this is going to receive. It's also unclear how easy it is to read stories in the way that people naturally read stories in the age of social media, which is by clicking on links. In, but you know, but I think what's important here is that Apple is clearly trying to position itself as the one-stop shop for media content. So whether you're talking about news or whether you're talking about streaming video, yes, partly they're going to be producing some of their own content, but the idea is also that you're going to come to Apple first and then you're going to go to all of these other different services. And that somehow they are going to take a whopping great cut of all of that money that you spend on whether it's news or video or gaming or just about anything else. They want, or even like spending money on a credit card, they want to take a slice. Yeah. And we should talk, I think, about the credit card and Apple Pay. But I will say, I mean, the services announcement, I think, was met by a lot of skepticism, you know, when it came out. One thing I'll say is Apple News is actually a good product. I don't know if our listeners use it or not, but I mean, when I sit on my Metro North train in the morning or in the afternoon, people, everyone uses it. I mean, and um, just looking at traffic stats that have posts, see a lot of traffic from Apple News. It's a successful product in my estimation. So, I mean, the idea that they could be a one-stop shop for other kinds of media, like Anna was saying, actually doesn't quite, I mean, it doesn't seem like an impossible. Especially because there are 1.4 billion Apple products that people are using. And Mm -hmm. and that's the issue here. If you're looking at a lot of these services, you say, well, does Apple really have some type of competitive advantage? Well, that is their advantage. Mm -hmm. They already have this built in addressable market. And And one of the things we learned with Apple Maps was that that is a huge advantage for them. Like when Apple Maps launched, it was like, I don't know if you can say this, but head and shoulders below Google Maps. Like, it was so much worse than Google Maps. It's it's improved since then. But for years, literally for years, it was like no one in their right mind, given the choice, and everyone was technically given the choice, would prefer Apple Maps to Google Maps. And yet some huge percentage of iPhone users, I think it was like 85 or 90% of iPhone users, used Apple Maps. This is the power of defaults. Mm-hmm. But I think... I don't know why I'm hawking Apple News so hard, but it's it's genuinely a better product than like the other ways. Like you were saying, is it how people consume information now? And like if you could go to Twitter to get your news, you could go to Facebook to get your news. But all that stuff is so tainted. Apple News is is a little bit curated by humans it, at the it top. Is, it is curated by Not humans. fully. I think right. the, the, the loading it's a, pages. It's a collection of publications which are, you know – professional news publications and each one of those professional news publications even if it doesn't have apple people working for them has like professional journalists working for Mm -hmm. them and more or less to a you know first degree of approximation if you read something on apple news you can trust it yeah i think this is civilized and i think this is interesting because apple you know historically has been focusing on offering premier products that's been the whole idea you pay more for getting Mm -hmm. this better product and it seems 
in services, they're kind of trying to do the same thing. I think this is interesting in gaming because they're trying to position it as like this is where the best game designers want to put out their product because it's not the kind of cheap free stuff that you can already get. Mm -hmm. And I think it'll be interesting to see what happens moving forward with that because overall, to me, it seems like Apple is trying to kind of move in a little bit to the Tencent market. Right. They're kind of trying to follow that model of how they've been able to generate a tremendous amount of money without actually having to do too much of selling your data to advertisers. And it seems to me that that's where Apple is maybe trying to say, oh, look, you know, how can we make money off of gaming? Granted, Tencent's model is very, very different. Also, potentially the idea of getting into mobile payments, getting more into mobile payments. That was one, that. one of the interesting things about this event was that, you know, while they didn't talk about the AirPods and the AirPods are by far the most popular new product that Apple has come out with in years, way more popular than Apple News or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And they didn't even mention them. Whereas they had a huge amount of, you know, but, you know, dazzling their time and whatnot devoted to Apple Card, which is basically at heart just another MasterCard that you can add to Apple Pay along with all of the other MasterCards and Visas and American Expresses that you can already add to Apple Pay. And it behaves pretty much the same way that all of them, that they all do, except for it has an Apple logo on it and your card is titanium. And it doesn't have the full number exposed on the card. Well, there is no, on the actual card. Yeah. yeah. And, but I think the actual card is, is kind of interesting if you want to nerd out a little bit. <laughs> it has a number which is embedded in the magnetic strip on the back of the card, right. but no human being right. can ever see that number, so no one can ever steal that number. I think that's kind of wild. It is kind of awesome. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I think, though, that really what they're trying to do, I, I, to me, it seems like, is it's less about the card itself, is it's trying to just shift more and more people into Apple mm -hmm. Pay, because eventually they want that kind of WeChat Pay or um, Alipay idea where, you know, you have your money goes to a bank account. Then you take that money and you just put that money into the this, like, Apple wallet eventually, and then... All of those different fees that currently credit cards and banks get, Apple wants to be able to get those. Types well, of I mean, fees. It's, it's, it, I mean, the Apple card they've said has no fees, and this is true. And it's uh, for uh, for a no fee credit card, it's a good credit card. It gives you decent cash back. It doesn't. It has no annual fee. It has no late fees. Like the interest rate that you pay on your balance does not go up if you're overdue on your payment, that kind of thing. They've said that the interest rate in general is going to be low compared to other cards, and I believe them on that. So I think as a product, it's a good product. And But what's interesting about it to me is that it is the first card which is designed to be a virtual card first. It's a digital card exactly. first. And then only in like extreme situations when some Luddite refuses to accept Apple Pay are you forced to take out your beautiful titanium card without any numbers on it. I mean, this is what Apple does, actually. It's not a pivot. Apple changes consumer behavior in order to keep consumers tethered to its products. So it's doing that, in this case, with a card. Right, because the U.S. is so far behind countries like China mm -hmm. when it comes to digital payments. So there's so well, it's so much far behind there. countries like India when it comes yes. to mm -hmm. digital right. payments. I right. mean, there's almost no country in the world which is you know further behind. Yeah, and, yeah, and partly payments. that has to do with the way that our banking system is work works and the regulations work. It's actually very hard for fintech companies to operate in the United States. We're very right. bulkanized because we system. don't have a central bank. We have twelve central banks, and in any other country, whether it's Sweden or India or anywhere else, the central bank just comes along and says. Okay, people, you need instant payments digitally between all bank accounts, and then the banks have to do it. Mm -hmm. But there doesn't seem to be any regulator 
both willing and able to do that in America. So it's uh, up to Apple. So Apple becomes yet another service, a little bit like PayPal, which is, which is also Venmo, or Square Cash. And there's a bunch of other ones, Stripe, which kind of store money for you, and they get to like earn interest on that money. Like If you have a Apple Pay balance, if you, if you have cash in Apple Pay, that is cash that is sitting on Apple's balance sheet, basically earning interest, and they don't pay interest. So That's where the money is for them and all this other stuff, news, video games, Reese Witherspoon, that's all just to get you in their orbit. And it's really the, the trick is to get you using your phone to pay for stuff. I'm not sure. I don't think Apple Pay is, I don't think payments is going to be that big of a revenue item for Apple just because the percentages are so much lower that, you know, you can earn a little bit of interest on the, you know, $25 balance I have on my Apple Pay account. But compared to the 50% of the $10 a month that I'm paying for Apple News, you know, that's $60 a year. It's going to be pretty hard for Apple to get $60 a year in interest on, you know, I would need to have a huge amount of money well, in I Apple Pay. No one's going to pay for Apple Yeah, and I, I think the idea is that <laughs> they know that immediately they're not going to be able to make a tremendous amount of money off of this. But if eventually they could shift more and more people towards digital payments and away from the kind of having to go through all of these intermediaries in banks, then a lot of those fees that merchants pay and such, the idea is eventually those could go directly to Apple. Because your iPhone will be your credit card. Well, I'm, no, it doesn't go directly to Apple. It remember, doesn't. It doesn't. My remember, point is that I remember think the Apple pay, No, but remember that Apple Pay itself, <clears throat> all of the Apple Pay terminals everywhere in the world, all of that money moves along the Visa and MasterCard rails. 100%. It's like, Apple is not replacing Visa and MasterCard. It is, it is basically working with Visa and MasterCard. And all of that interchange that Visa and MasterCard currently charge will continue to be charged and will continue to go to Visa and MasterCard. Exactly. You know, but that's, to, to issuing banks. that's not, I think, where they see things moving eventually. I think eventually they want to be able to cut out those intermediaries. They're not. They can't do it now. But I think they want to get people used to paying in this way and then eventually be able to shift more towards the kind of models we've been seeing in China. I think that sounds interesting. I mean, that sounds interesting. That's what I think. I could be 100% wrong. <laughs> but, you know, as, as someone, as, as a payments nerd, I can tell you that, like, just in terms of infrastructure, I, I can't see how that's possible. I think in an amazing future world, Apple would love it if all of those Apple Pay terminals suddenly, like, disconnected from the Visa and MasterCard rails and started connecting to some, like, Apple fintech rails but i i would be astonished if they were working on that because that that basically turns apple into a highly regulated piece of financial infrastructure and i'm not sure that's what they want to be that's why they're working with goldman sachs for this card all of the actual financial plumbing with this card is being done by goldman it's not being done by apple Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Emily. Hi. Tell me about the Sackler family. Are they, like, sweating these days? They are sweating these days. Blood is in the water for the Sackler family. Do they need some, like, 
you know, medication to help deal with that pain. <laughs> they probably need some long-acting OxyContin to help them relieve the pain of being seen as exposed as evil. I'm just going to say that <laughs> flat out. You can say so, that flat out. So the, the news is that there's a lawsuit in Oklahoma. They sued the Sackler family, I believe, and Purdue Pharma for basically causing an opioid crisis in the state. And they settled for $270 million. And there are a lot of other lawsuits pending around the country. New York filed one this week against Sacklers personally and Purdue Pharma in particular as so well. So th- that's the difference between the New York case and the Oklahoma case. Is the Oklahoma case was just against Purdue Thank Pharma, yeah. which was founded by the Sacklers and yeah. is largely owned by the Sacklers, but is still like this limited liability corporate entity. Right. Whereas the New York case is going against the Sackler family individually and saying, oh, and yeah, we see you setting up all of these shell corporations and paying yourself billions of dollars right. like, under the table. And-, and and now Purdue Pharma, I think one of the reasons they were able to settle in Oklahoma is they're now threatening to declare bankruptcy to avoid liability for what they've done. And what they've done is cause at least 200,000 deaths in this country, thanks to OxyContin specifically, I believe. Well, I mean, it's so if you look at overall deaths, the, the line that Purdue Pharma will say, which is I will tell you, you can pretty much say it's not accurate. But what they will say is that, well, we only actually have like 6% market share. And a lot of these, the, a lot of the opioid deaths as well are actually not necessarily caused by OxyContin, but caused by fentanyl or, or heroin. But why even repeat that? Well, That's no, exactly. I, I, but they started this. No, no, no. But my, my point is that, like, I, I think the re- I'm just saying that because I'm saying, like, this is what the other argument is. But of course, the reason that that doesn't hold water is because they were the ones who really first started pushing this. And and their whole goal initially, it's, it was kind of interesting. It wasn't just necessarily to sell their medication. They would really push their reps to just get doctors more comfortable prescribing opioids in general with the idea that they were going to just increase the overall market. And then they were going to be able to really, really, really start pushing their specific drugs. They, they, they talked uh, about they, combating opioid phobia, which was the, right. relu- the reticence by doctors to prescribe highly addictive medicines. And they then lied they, and marketed, yeah. as everyone knows, I guess, they lied. And, and marketed this drug as not being addictive because it's you know it was long acting. It was to last even hours. it was even bigger than that. What they did was they started talking about how every doctor should consider pain to be a vital sign, and that mm-hmm. when you're yeah. like trying to work out the health of your patient, you should always ask like, "Are you in pain? How much pain are you in? Are you in chronic pain?" And the pain relief, which was this you know multi billion dollar opportunity for them was something which they just wanted to bring into every single doctor's visit that anyone ever had. And that, you know, if they could get some small percentage of the, a massively increased pain relief pie, then, you know, they were selling a highly addictive substance. And then once people got onto that, they would continue to, you know, use OxyContin or other Purdue Pharma things, or, you know, they didn't particularly care about this, or they would just wind up taking heroin. Yeah. And one thing that's become clear with all these lawsuits, especially the one in Massachusetts, the AG Maura Healy filed, I think, in January, is how much the Sacklers themselves knew about how addicted people were becoming to these drugs and how soon. So it it was like 1996, I think the drug was released on the market. It was pretty soon after that that reports were coming in that people were crushing and snorting and injecting these drugs and people were dying and becoming quite addicted. And I believe it was Richard Sackler, I think, was CEO at the time. Um, 
you know, was like, well, that's their problem. There was, you know, this the classic ethos of individual responsibility really taken to its extreme here where you release this extremely addictive drug, lie about what it does, and then blame people for becoming addicted to it. And this is interesting in terms of how there are a lot of internal emails have come out showing how involved a lot of the Sackler family was Mm -hmm. in the actual marketing. Yes. And in the marketing plans and the idea of how you should talk about the addiction concerns, how you should talk about things like pseudo addiction, which is, in fact, just addiction. Yes. And, they, you know, it was very, very hands on, which I is obviously extremely important moving forward in terms of not just the company being held liable, but these individuals being held liable. Right. And then I think we should probably also talk about, which we I think we touched on last week with Anna's number, which is how the Sacklers themselves tried to keep their name out of this nasty business. And Reputation then, laundering by building Sackler wings in all of the grandest museums in the world. And what I, there's a really fascinating <laughs> subtext to this story, which is there are um, basically two arms of the Sackler family, one of which is associated with Purdue Pharmaceuticals and one of which isn't. And the non-Purdue Sacklers were also creating Sackler wings. And the there's this really interesting kind of thing, like saying, should we just get rid of Sackler wings? And then there's a whole bunch of people saying, well, we can't really blame the non-Purdue Sacklers, but it's all like part of this broader reputation for laundering for the family as a whole. And apparently it was going on pre-Oxycontin because I was reading there's that great New Yorker piece from a couple of years ago on the Patrick family. Patrick Radden-Keefe, he was like, yeah. he was so early on this. It was so yeah. good. And um, he talks about Arthur Sackler, who was one of the three brothers. You know, they were all doctors and they founded this company together. But he was like the marketing mastermind genius guy. And um, before Oxycontin even he was out there pushing Valium on Americans to the point where there was like a congressional hearing because there was a crisis over the overprescribing of Valium. They got doctors to just prescribe it for whatevs. Like even if there wasn't anything wrong with patients, they were just getting Valium all the time. It was like he was on this. This guy died in 1987 and he told his kids allegedly, according to this New Yorker piece, leave the world a better place than when you entered it. I have, I mean, one of the things that the the, the Sacklers did and Purdue did, and it is by no means unique to them, but they were really ahead of the curve on this, was move from this idea that drug companies invent drugs which are used to treat disease and then doctors will use those drugs if their patients have that disease to this idea of drugs as a branded good which can be marketed and they would spend billions of dollars marketing drugs to the medical profession and those marketing dollars were very well spent and doctors it turns out are very susceptible to these marketing campaigns. Well because I think yes there are obviously like bad doctors but I also think a lot of it is you have doctors who legitimately want to help their patients and when they're being told you know this is a safe drug and they have so because chronic pain is a serious issue in the United States. And so we, they have people coming to them. It's not overly surprising that a lot of doctors, before they knew all these risks, would prescribe. Yeah. One thing that killed me in the Patrick Radden Keefe piece was that Purdue Pharma specifically went after low income areas to market the drugs. And that just, and now these areas are like just ravaged by the opioid crisis. You know, I guess they fixed Oxycontin. So when you smush it now, you can't easily snort it anymore. But people still take it. And then the rest of the people that don't want that, they're just they're taking other drugs, heroin, fentanyl, et cetera. It's just so sad. I think they should declare bankruptcy and, and they should be their names removed from everything. And they should just slink away. Like, I, I don't understand why these people aren't in jail. 
And I guess that sounds extreme, but like people go to jail for a lot less in this country. Yeah, you know one thing that I always find interesting, though, and I I, I agree with you. <gasps> oh my god! <laughs> I know. It's right. Wow. <laughs> um, but no, I, I just say this because if you look at overall deaths of opioids, I mean, it's 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 horrible, but they pale in comparison to the number of deaths caused by alcohol use. And I, I find it interesting just how we view substances now. I mean, and even cigarettes. I mean, cigarettes, it's and, and they're still legal. And I mean, alcohol, it's like 90,000 deaths a year. And that's not even taking into account all of the lost years. And, and I'm not saying I'm not like Carrie Nation over here and saying uh, we should outlaw alcohol. But I do think it raises these interesting questions about substances that do cause a tremendous amount of suffering, lost economic opportunity, mm-hmm. all of these things. It just seemed like Oxycontin was a very extreme product, you know, that had dubious value to begin with. It was like more extreme even, I don't know if I want to say cigarettes, but more extreme it than is, alcohol. No, I mean, it's certainly... You can com- use alcohol in moderation. Th- it, there are a lot of people who drink regularly and, you know, suffer no health adverse consequences, no visible health adverse consequences as a result. There are even <laughs> people who are you know, genuinely addicted to alcohol who don't have a lot of adverse health consequences as a result. Like, it's, it's, the thing about the opioids is that it's very easy to get hooked. And then once you're hooked, you're almost certainly going to wind up getting, like, devastatingly addicted. It's, it, the probabilities are so much higher. Yeah. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. So the big news of... The week in finance was the Lyft IPO, the company which didn't quite manage to lose a billion dollars last year, but came close, managed to raise over $2 billion in its IPO and went public at a very high valuation at $72 a share, which was, what, $25 billion-ish, something like that, and then immediately started trading at a 20% premium to that. So people really... some subset of investors out there in the universe really want to buy this stock. So I'm going to turn to Anna now and say, Anna, who are these people and why are they buying this stock? Um, I thought they wanted to, this was like Lyft had to go out first because if Uber went out first, no one would want Lyft, basically. So it's almost like the Lyft IPO is a a proxy for the Uber. Well, I mean, this is also a, a very large IPO. And this is, you know, it's a one of the like kind of hotter companies that is coming to market. And I mean, did, it makes did you hear, sense. Did you hear the A plus acronym, which I really, really hate? But apparently it stands for Airbnb, Pinterest, Lyft, Uber, and Slack. A plus. A plus. But I mean, I, I do think it makes sense that Lyft would want to come before Uber because mm-hmm. it seems like if it came after, it would be kind of like, well. <laughs> yeah, no one's buying Pepsi if Coke's out there. Right. And, and I, but I do think that's also, though, does raise the question of this valuation for a company where their growth is actually like the rate of growth is declining. And whereas the rate of growth of their costs are increasing at a point where we're clearly like hitting up 
you know, kind of peak of the market. Well, there's uh, there's something interesting in the economics of these two companies because they're in this incredible price war. And they're basically competing with each other for which one can subsidize every single ride more than the other, which like it's become largely a commodity business. And people take whichever one is cheaper. And the one thing that both Lyft and Uber have learned is that if you come out with promotions and discounts and stuff like that, then people will react rationally to those and will wind up, you know, if if they have a Lyft coupon, they'll take the Lyft. If they have an Uber coupon, they'll take the Uber. And so the two companies are fighting for basically spending billions of dollars to gain market share at the expense of the other. This cannot go on forever. Well, and yeah, because you could say, well, maybe that would make sense if they had some type of plan of like, this is how we will become profitable, the kind of like Amazon idea of like how you well, I can lose all this money, but then eventually I develop AWS and everything's everything's great. I mean, the, the, the idea to become profitable is quite simple, which is that if and when you actually start paying the drivers less than you receive in fares, then you can pocket the difference. Right. But, but then they, you're going to have to start charging quite a bit more, especially exactly. is, yeah, especially part of the reason that people take a lot of these services is partly because they're more convenient, but partly also because the price is usually decent. And now also like in New York, we're having an increasing number of surcharges that are coming on top of this. So you are going to have a harder time growing your customer base if people are like, well, this is really, really expensive. They're, I mean, just basic economics. They're not going to use it as much. Mm, But I think it's like that Apple thing, too, where like Uber really has changed consumer behavior. Like the people I know that are like maybe a decade younger than me, like they don't even know how to call a car service in New York or like hail a cab anymore. It seems like everyone just does Uber. You don't even sometimes look at how much you paid until sometime after. So I could see a a scenario where, you know, they do their little Uber Lyft deathmatch. One succeeds, the other one goes away and then starts charging more money. Okay, It would have to be a lot more money. Okay, but here's here's the question, right? And which which is the first question I asked Anna and I really want to come back to, which is like, who is buying this stock and why are they buying it? Because it's very, very easy for anyone to point at a company which is like minus 44% EBITDA margins and say, like, it doesn't make any sense. I don't understand why anyone would buy this for $1 a share, let alone, you know, $80 a share or $90 a share. So, but the more interesting question is to say, like, look at the people who are buying it and ask, ask yourself, why are they buying it? And to your point of like, you know, if they're hoping that there will be one winner and then that one winner can start collecting monopoly rents, isn't it obvious that the one winner is going to be Uber and not Lyft? Yeah. So what is the what is the answer to your question? Well, I mean, to me, it seems I'm like part, partly it's that, you know, ride hailing is this new part of kind of automotive industry that people haven't been able to take part in yet. Most people have not been able to kind of take part in the growth of this new industry. And I think that partly Lyft is benefiting from a little bit of the Uber sheen of this idea. That, well, that that this is the future of cars. This is the future. And not even just cars, but also bike scooters, all, like how how people move in the world. This is the future of that. And of course, I think this does tie into these like long term ideas people have about driverless cars and how this is going to be part of that. I'm very suspect about all of that. But but Lyft is, you know, they're, they're big in micro mobility, as it's called. They're not just cars. They own City Bike in New York. They have a whole bunch of like scooter attempts to try and they, their idea is they're the company that will get you around cities, you know, when you're not using 
actual state-owned public transportation. Well, and I also the bet on like everyone getting smart and and trying to do something about climate change, and then a company like like a Lyft is where you go because people aren't doing traditional well, driving anymore. Partly, it has to do with younger consumers' behavior, and I do think Lyft. I mean, Lyft is positioning itself more as you know just mobility, right? Mm-hmm. And also more focused on just the U.S. They have, I think, Canada as well. But yeah. whereas Lyft, or as Uber has lost a lot of money going overseas. And also Uber is trying out all of these different services as well, which to me, I actually think probably makes sense long term. Well, Uber, Uber but- claims that, you know, Uber Eats alone is worth, you know, almost as much as Lyft. And they just bought Kareem. They, they can every so often they buy rival companies, and every so often they sell rival companies or sell two rival companies in right in foreign countries. But they are much more of a sort of international ride-hailing platform. You can open your Uber app just about anywhere you go on the planet in any decent-sized city, and there's a very good chance that it will work. That isn't true of Lyft. And it could be that if you're looking for a company that is really, really focused on mobility in basically the United States or just basically North America, that maybe it would make sense to go with a Lyft as opposed to going with Uber, which does have clearly a very different focus. The one thing I'll add, just because I am I have this little bee in my bonnet about it, is that Lyft is the first company to go, well, not the first, actually the second. The first one was Levi's, which also went public this week. Levi's and Lyft both went public this week after the S&P indices, S&P Dow Jones indices, announced that any new company going public with a dual-class share structure would not be allowed into the S&P 500. And both Levi's and Lyft went public with a dual-class share structure, which means that neither of them, no matter how big they get, no matter how profitable they get, no matter how dominant they get, neither of them will ever be allowed into the S&P 500, and neither of them will ever have that you know, shareholder base of long-term index fund shareholders, which big companies love. It's fascinating they made that choice to me. Yeah, and I mean, I'm very glad that the indices did this. I mean, I think we've, we've talked about this before, but this is a, should be a concern for investors, this like just problems with corporate governance. I mean, I think you just have to look at a company like Facebook mm-hmm. to see like what happens when you you have people running the company who really aren't beholden to anyone. So, yeah, Anna, Emily, and Felix have... Uh, utterly befuddled. We don't entirely understand why Lyft is seemingly so popular or who's buying it. So if you bought Lyft shares and <laughs> intend to hold them for longer than about five minutes, do email us on slatemoney at slate.com and we will try and maybe next week come back with the sort of bull case for Lyft. But I'm fascinated. I think, honestly, a lot of it is just momentum trading and, and creative fool theory and saying, well, this is a hot company which is going right. up, so I finally get to buy into it. But it may, may, then maybe there's more. Let us know. Let's have a numbers round. I'm going to start actually this week with $6,790, which is the amount that the FCC has collected in fines from robocallers. It has sent out, get this, $208 million in fines on robocall. There's a whole bunch of people who are breaking, robocallers who are breaking the law, and they have been fined $208 million. Of that $208 million, the FCC has actually managed to collect 6790 That's That's pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? They're not even paying for themselves. <laughs> oh, my God. Why can't they catch them? They, they disappear. They evaporate. Oh, what a world. 
My number is $34,000. That is the cost of one dose of this new drug meant to help women with postpartum depression called Zolreso. So it's $34,000. And in order to take it, you need to stay in the hospital. So I think you wind up paying even more. And how many doses do you need? Just one? The one dose, and then you have to stay and be observed because I think it makes you a little dizzy. And um, there was a nice opinion piece in The Times about how this is such a problematic thing because, post first of all, it, obviously only certain women will be able to afford this or have good enough insurance to afford it. Second of all, you have to be able to go back to the hospital and stay there while you have a new baby at home. And third of all, like a lot of the causes of Postpartum depression occurs more frequently in societies with, like, higher income inequality, you know, things like that. And um, this doesn't seem like the right solution, you know. It's just like the pharmaceutical industry doing its thing is what I see. I feel like we're, we're, we're like, down on the pharma industry this week. <laughs> but I feel they totally deserve it. So we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Anna, what's your number? My number is $10 million. So that's, Is that dollars or is that not dollars? It's not dollars. It's, it's not dollars. Units. Ooh, Okay. So that's the number of units sold of Michelle Obama's memoir thus far. Ah, so books, books, yes. and and also ebooks. <laughs> okay, yes, yes. I think audiobooks. because uh, so she's on track for it to be the best selling memoir ever. Wow, which I just think is kind of in a, in a time of very very sad stories. I just feel like it's it's kind of lovely. It's a lovely book. I've seen a lot of people reading it, but I've also s- seen. A lot of people gifting it is mm-hmm. one of those. Yes. It's one of those things. I feel like there are lots of people out there who've received this like four times already. Yes. Yeah, in my family, I think one person, my aunt, got it, and I think it got passed around for a lot of people. <laughs> I haven't gotten it yet. Yeah, you haven't been regifted that book yet. No, you have. You read it? I have. Yeah, it's good. No, it's. I, I, yeah, I, I would say the first two thirds is really good about kind of her childhood, coming of age, when her and Barack are like dating. It, it's mm-hmm. pretty fun. The part in the White House I actually think is not quite as good, which isn't overly surprising because as you read it, you just really kind of understand how much she really does not like politics. I remember when they did that massive book deal and everyone was shocked at how much Barack Obama's book deal was. And they were like, oh, yeah, I guess that it comes as a pair and he's throwing in Michelle's book as well. So that might explain it. It's like, no, actually, Michelle's book is the one that he's going to outsell Barack's. Yeah. Okay, I think that's it for us this week. Thank you very much for listening to all things Apple and Purdue and Lyft and stay tuned for Slate Plus on suits and whether and how we wear suits these days. Many thanks to Jessamine Molly for producing. Many thanks to Anna and Emily and you guys for all like participating in this incredible production that is Slate Money. We've been going for a while now. I'm, I feel like we're hitting our groove. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Money.